Let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to invite John to come up and read for us this morning. Hey everybody, I'm John. I'm going to be sharing uh, Hebrews 12, 18 through 24 with you from God's Word. Uh, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the fountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, in this, uh, in this passage, 12, 18 through 24, uh, we see a clear distinction there. It really breaks down into two sections. You have not come to this mountain, verse 18, right? But you have come to this mountain, verse 22. And so in a few minutes, we will understand why he has divided this section into these two parts and, and what these two mountains have to do with the context of endurance, And so let me just set the scene and remind us of why the author is writing this at this point to the audience at at this moment. Uh, Throughout the book of Hebrews, he has labored to demonstrate that Jesus is worth following, uh, that Jesus is worth uh, giving your life to, and that despite whatever trial or difficulty or persecution that you might currently be experiencing, as this uh, audience would have experienced difficulty and trials and persecution, see chapter 10, Right There were uh, people who were being put in prison because of their uh, declaration of faith in Jesus. And because of the persecution and the trials and the difficulty that they were experiencing, the hostility against them from the culture, they were tempted to go backward into Judaism. And so throughout the book of Hebrews, one of the main themes is endure. Maintain your faith in Jesus Christ, continue to stand for Him, uh, and run this race with endurance. That's what we read in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It made me think this week, as, we, as I reflected and prayed through this passage, what is it that would make you give up, or turn around, or walk away from your faith in Jesus? Would it be a trial? Would it be pain, physical pain? Would it be emotional pain? Would it be a drifting? Would it just be a love for sin and a continual indulgence in that that makes your heart cold toward God? Is it a willfulness? Is it pride? Is it stubbornness? Is it an unwillingness to obey? Something in your life, some pressure point, some trial, some difficulty, some issue might put just enough pressure in just the right spot to make you want to walk away from faith altogether. I had just such a moment, uh, maybe 10 years ago, and I was going through an experience, a difficult trial, and it was acute enough, it was direct enough, it was surgical in such a way that I, I, in my heart, just said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to walk with you anymore. If this is the the result, then I'm struggling, and I, I can't handle the difficulty that I'm experiencing right now. 
And it was at that moment that I received several phone calls, text messages, and emails and other things from maybe five people around the nation. People who said, hey, the Lord put you on my heart and want to encourage you tonight to keep going, whatever it is you're going through, just to maintain. And it was one of those moments where just for a brief moment, I thought this, this hurts, this is hard, and this is difficult, and I don't want to go forward. Jesus may be anticipating things like that. And Matthew chapter 13 said in a parable, in two parables, in Matthew 13, 44 through 46, he compared the kingdom of heaven like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and then covered up. After finding that treasure in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and he bought that field. He told another parable with virtually the same meaning. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. I don't know if you've ever watched uh, Treasure Hunters or other shows like that where people find amazing things. I remember a story, uh, 1989, a Philadelphia uh, financial analyst at a, a flea market in Adamstown, PA, picked up an old painting and realized there was something behind it. And hidden behind the artwork was a rare copy of the Declaration of Independence. And what he bought for just a few dollars sold at auction in 1991 for $2.42 million dollars. If you found a treasure in a field, would you sell everything to buy that field? What if it was a hassle to sell everything? Have you ever tried to sell anything on Craigslist? Ever tried to buy anything on Craigslist where you get a call and I'll be there with cash in hand and they never show up or you're trying to coordinate and you get there and what was displayed in the picture is something entirely different. I don't know that I would be willing to sell everything in that way, but, um, but if along the way you found something extraordinarily valuable, but it would cost you everything that you currently have, but in exchange for everything you currently have would give you infinitely more value and treasure, would it be worth it to you? John Calvin writes about these two parables that they are intended to instruct believers to prefer God's kingdom over the whole world and to deny themselves and all the desires of their flesh so that nothing would prevent them from obtaining so valuable a possession. We are greatly in need of this warning for we are so captivated by the allurements of the world that eternal life often fades away from our view. And in consequence of our carnality, the spiritual graces of God are far from being held by us in the same estimation to which they deserve. Do you treasure Christ? Does he reign superior in your life? Is your heart fixed on him? Is your devotion full to him? Which of us doesn't know the temptation to walk away in some ways and give in to temptation to not treasure Christ. And so the author of Hebrews wants them to endure so that they may realize the great prize for which Jesus purchased them. 
As 1 Peter describes that we are his treasured possession, a royal people, that we have been purchased by him, for him, and that one day we will be with him. And so with that in mind, he wants them to endure. And in this section, he's giving them reasons and motivations and direct commands that we talked about last week. He wants them to endure, to persist by faith, to maintain their eyes on Jesus Christ through this time. And so he's reminding the audience what exactly they came to and what exactly their reward would be like. And he did it using these two mountain uh, metaphors, this this comparison of these two mountains. So this morning I want to remind you, I want you to remember who you came to and why you came to him. John told recipients of the letter to, of Revelation, he told them to remember your first love. Remember from where, how you've fallen away and remember your first love. Remember why you first came to Jesus in the first place. So this morning, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember your condition. Remember the moment in which you most needed him and you were so aware of that need that you cried out to him in faith. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins and to to give you the grace that you need and the forgiveness that you needed. And remember how He responded by coming and uh, giving you life, giving you hope, giving you the promise of forgiveness and eternal life. And it's in remembering that that we can often find the strength to endure. Because you can endure anything if the reward is great enough. Many of you have goals. Many of you are working towards accomplishing something. And whatever it is you're working toward, what motivates you in the difficult times is what your life will be like once you accomplish that. This passage gives us this heavenly vision. So let's read through it together against the backdrop of the mountain that you have not come to. Thank God. Hebrews 12, 18 through 21. Let's, let's go through this section. There are two sections. Let's look at the first one. Verses 18 through 21 says, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches that mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. What is this terrible scene that he's talking about? Well, it doesn't say it, but the audience would have immediately understood what this was. This was Exodus 19. This was the deliverance from Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, and the people of Israel who were rescued from Egypt, delivered straight into the mountain of God, the Mount Sinai. Moses was to go up on that mountain. The presence of God would descend upon that mountain. And in so doing, the Mosaic law was given. The law was given, and it was given in such a terrible way. Think about this backdrop. I don't think you could find an experience in your life that mimics what these four verses describe. They couldn't touch the mountain. There was, uh, in a real way, like a police line, a yellow line that might have wrapped around the mountain. But they couldn't cross that line. If even an animal crossed that line, it was so charged with the holiness of God that that animal couldn't be touched, but it had to be taken out and stoned. 
uh, and, and uh, destroyed because it was so filled with the holiness of God. This terrifying scene is described as a blazing fire, a darkness, a gloom, and a tempest. A few years ago, I went to the Orange Bowl in Miami. Uh, we won't talk about how badly OU got destroyed by Clemson that year, uh, but it was fun to go. Grayson and I went. It was a Christmas present, uh, and a few friends from my hometown in Norman, Oklahoma, met there, and we went, and we, we tailgated, and we got into the, into the stadium, and we were maybe 25 rows up from the 25-yard line, and off on the other side of the field, maybe... 200 yards away, we could see uh, our team assembling in the tunnel. And as they were running through this tunnel, this enormous ball of fire shot up uh, into the air. And immediately, within a moment, as it went up, we felt the intense heat from that. And I looked at Grayson and he looked at me and I said, did you feel that? It's an amazing ball of fire. I don't know if you've ever been too close to fire or if you've experienced what that feels like, but this mountain was on fire. It's also described as darkness and gloom and a tempest. Uh, In Oklahoma, where I'm from, there's an average of 600 tornadoes a year. And so the obvious question is, why would you live there, right? (laughs) Why would you live there? Same Same with people in maybe California who get earthquakes and people in Florida who get hurricanes. Except that it's nothing like California or Florida. There's no beaches or beauty (laughs) or anything to it. But if you've grown up there, there's something amazing about tornado weather. I can remember as a kid being um, outside on a hot summer day. And something would shift. The air would change. uh, You would feel a cool breeze. There would be a dark cloud gathering, the winds would change, and there would just be something about you. You probably have a creepy uncle or something that can feel when the weather's going to change and something in his knees, or I don't know what that was, but, but there's a real change in everything when tornado weather is coming, and I, I've been a part of, I've seen, I've, I've been very close to uh, very deadly tornadoes. When Julie and I first met, we were leaving church on a Wednesday night and along I-44 coming from the southwest, moving northeast was uh, a tornado that was gathering in strength. And we happened to be at a church at Northwest Baptist, which is uh, right off I-44. And so that tornado uh, was slowly picking up steam and about 30 minutes away, it, it turned into an F4 uh, and on that scale, the winds were extremely high, very dangerous, moving into a highly populated area. And so um, being smart at the moment, we decided, well, let's get off I-44. If it's on I-44 and it's coming and we've got 20 minutes or so, let's go. And so we went um, south toward the tornado, and then we turned left to go as fast as we could west on I-40. And as we're driving west, we pass downtown, and what we didn't know is that we could hear on the radio is that that tornado, at the same time we turned west to go on I-40, it also turned west. I'm sorry, it also turned east. And it, it was moving east. And so as we passed through downtown, it was getting closer and closer. And we heard as we're getting closer to what's called Midwest City or Tinker Air Force Base, uh, we heard that if you are near Tinker Air Force Base, Get underground. This has evolved. It's an F5 now, and it's 
uh, it will destroy, you know, it will destroy everything in its path. And, uh, and so I just floored it, trying to outrun this thing. And we're coming on the same path and, and we barely missed it. It crossed over and disseminated as we crossed over it. But it was this terrible, awful, horrible, black weather, difficult experience. And it's nothing like this Mount Sinai experience. Full of gloom, a tempest, a blazing fire, darkness. You add to that, there is the sound of a trumpet. We learn in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 and and in Deuteronomy as well that, that this trumpet blast was increasing in sound and in strength. As uh, it was going, it was, it was increasing in sound. I tried to find a trumpeter. Do we have any trumpeters in the room today? Any trumpeters? Not a single one. You need to pick up a trumpet. But, but I, I, as I was thinking about this, I, I learned about a military and civil um, invention, this application called a sound cannon that is meant to break up riots and break up crowds. And what it does is it, it releases enormous sound uh, and it aims it at a crowd of people so that um, they have to get away from the sound that this cannon is making. And this is what's taking place on Mount Sinai. There's a loud sound, darkness, gloom, a blazing fire, a tempest. So it's windy, dark and gloomy. This enormous increasing sound and a terrifying voice. It says that they they wanted uh, they couldn't go near it and they wanted um, they wanted it to stop. They couldn't touch uh, and hear the voice any longer. There was a, a terrifying voice. Look at verse 19. The hearers, it made the hearers beg that they hear no more messages. Verse 21 says, Indeed, it was so terrifying of a sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, Moses was the one guy who was called to go into that. Everybody else had to stand back. It was such a terrible and difficult scene. It prompted me to ask a couple of questions. Have you ever been a part of, uh, have you ever been so terrified at anything that you lie on the ground, maybe you covered your head? I can remember drills in, in elementary school where if a tornado was coming, we were supposed to go into the hallways and get down and put our hands over our head. I don't know if you've seen a tornado, but I don't know that that would have done much good. But we would do these drills and, and we never had to do one. I've never been in the narrow path of a tornado to where I was terrified and laying down. I, I emailed about 30 people this week and I asked them, have you ever been in an experience so terrifying like that? And I got, I got a reply. Uh, I got a reply from someone who uh, grew up in a very dangerous neighborhood um, and in this dangerous neighborhood, there were often violent events that took place. Uh, and she wrote that there was one particular event where they heard sounds around the house. And as they looked out the window, they saw police in full gear. Uh, and they, they were immediately told by their parents to get down on the ground and to cover up uh, as a neighbor was being arrested. Um, through this SWAT team. Have you ever been afraid like that? I'm not trying to cause you to go back there. I don't want to see anybody get twitchy or anything. But, uh, but these terrifying experiences are nothing compared to the way Scripture describes the presence of God. 
You think about Isaiah and Isaiah 6, who is confronted with the holiness and the presence of God and says, woe is me. Woe is me, and he's immediately on his face. You think of Moses at the burning bush and the presence of God immediately falls faceward. You think of Peter, James, and John at the Mount of Transfiguration experiencing the holy presence of God, and they, they don't even have a moment to think or react. They're just falling as though dead people. You think about the Apostle John in Revelation 1.17. It describes that he on the island of Patmos hears a voice, turns around, sees Jesus in his resurrected state in this way. And when he sees him, it says he fell down as though dead. There is an awe-inspiring, incredible, amazing reaction that we will have to the presence of God. And it is altogether at once terrifying and uh, awesome. He's telling them against this backdrop that this Mount Sinai, you didn't come to that mountain. What does Mount Sinai represent? It represents the law of God. It represents the law of God. It was there on the mountain that the holy, perfect standard of God was revealed. And to have experienced the giving of the law under those circumstances in that scene at Mount Sinai, and then to see the Ten Commandments, to see the, the, the commands that each of us are obligated to fulfill as God's created people, that this is the law that we're supposed to live up to, would have been equally terrifying in light of the fact that if you don't obey these commandments, this is the God to whom you have to be judged by. It would have been a terrible scene. But this is why we're so grateful for Jesus is that Jesus not only was the giver of the law, the word made flesh, but he also perfectly fulfilled that law. He obeyed every single command that was in the revealed Mosaic law. Never once was there sin found in him. And so against that backdrop, We have this terrifying picture of Sinai so that we can contrast it with the mountain that we have come to in verse 22. This mountain that we have come to is radiant and glorious and gracious. The awful terror of Sinai, Albert Moeller writes, which is not the mountain to which we have come, shows the radical mercy of God at Zion. At Zion, God embraces us with his grace and administers to us a covenant where he does not merely write the law upon tablets of stone, but he writes them upon the tablets of our hearts and gives us the Holy Spirit ability to fulfill and follow those laws. So what is this Mount Zion? Let's look again at verse 22. You haven't come to Mount Sinai, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Stop there. What is Zion? Zion is a real place. It was a real place on the south end of Jerusalem uh, near what's called the city of David. In 2 Samuel 5, 7, it says David took the stronghold of Zion. That is, he took the city of David. Zion was a real place. It was a real stronghold. And it was a real place that David went in and really conquered. And as David conquered that, and as David's kingdom grew, it became a metaphorical place. It became synonymous with Jerusalem. 
It became synonymous with the temple. It became synonymous with the presence of God. And it became uh, the strength of Israel. You'll find it all over the Psalms. Psalm 2.6 says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, which is my holy hill. Psalm 15 describes who may ascend the hill of God, the holy hill of God. In all these ways, it's referring back to this metaphorical place of Zion, which is God's presence and His holiness. It has a real place meaning. It had a metaphorical place meaning for these people. But for us, it has an eschatological purpose as well. Eschatology is the doctrine of end times. That is what's going to happen at the end of the world. And for us, Zion represents something important. It represents what we celebrated earlier in the Lord's Supper. It represents the marriage supper of the Lamb. It represents the place in which we will come together and meet with God. It is synonymous with the new Jerusalem. It is, as it were, the county seat or the capital of God's presence in the new kingdom. And when you see this view of this new Jerusalem, this new place... Uh, We see uh, in Mount Zion, in verse 22, the heavenly Jerusalem, we see innumerable angels in festal gathering. You might ask, well, how many is innumerable? How many angels are there? We don't know. They're innumerable. Uh, We can't number them. Uh, They are uh, without number. But we can see that these innumerable angels are in this vestal gathering. Hebrews says a lot about angels. The Bible gives us clues about angels. Uh, Chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews describe angels um, as heavenly messengers and as deliverers of the Old Covenant. Uh, But Jesus is superior to them. We see in Hebrews 13 too that we'll get to in a few weeks that we are to entertain strangers because some have entertained angels without being aware of it. We know from the Bible and from the Old Testament, especially and and some in the New Testament, that when an angel visits, there's a lot of confusion, right? Some people fall down. Some people try to worship them. The angels are often saying things like, stand up, man. I'm I'm not a I'm just a servant like you are. Don't worship me. Um, Others deliver good news. Others are warriors. There are all these different views of angels. Um, Ezekiel had some crazy visions of different angels with all kinds of wheels and wings and stuff that cover their eyes and their feet. And we have all these images of angels. But in all these ways, we have no idea what's coming when we read this passage that you will be in the new Jerusalem with innumerable angels. All right, so that's one part of this scene. We also see that in this new Jerusalem, there will be an assembly of the firstborn. What does that mean? The assembly of the firstborn to those who are enrolled in heaven. What we see in Revelation 20 and 19, that, uh, that, that uh, after the great judgment, uh, that uh, during the great judgment, that all those living and dead, all those uh, who have ever been born, all those who will come before God, it says books will be opened. And that uh, the Lamb's book of life will be opened. And those whose names are written in the book of life uh, will come and have um, eternity. They will be able to have uh, God's presence. They will be able to go into heaven. Those whose names are not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. So we see in that the assembly of the firstborn are all of those redeemed people. People who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus from every tribe, from every tongue, from every ethnicity, 
from every skin tone, from every time period, every single soul who has ever been redeemed and purchased by the blood of Jesus will be there in this gathering. You might think, I didn't sign up for that. I thought that this was a white American Southern sort of faith. In many ways, the way in which we worship reveals our racism. The the way in which we live oftentimes doesn't depict the way in which the kingdom is, that it is a multi-ethnic, multi-cultural, multi-linguistic. It is a faith of all peoples that God treasures every man and every woman and every child in such a way that they all have an invitation to be a part of the redeemed. And you and I, if you are in Christ, will be a part of this celebration. All the assembly of the firstborn, that is all those who are born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, all those enrolled in heaven. And being there will be God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. It's impossible for us to have a picture of this, but you are coming to the greatest gathering in the history of the universe. It is the culmination of all of redemptive history and creative history, and it is the reunification of God and mankind and the doing away of all evil, sin, and wickedness. Can you imagine that scene? And it is a scene for all eternity. It is a scene in which there will be no greater treasure. There will be no greater gathering. There will never be a moment of celebration like this. In that same email I sent to others during the week, I asked them, what's the greatest gathering you've ever been to? The greatest scene you can imagine? Maybe on the point of scale, on the point of numbers of people, on the occasion of joy and excitement and celebration. Some responded with a graduation uh, or a wedding celebration. Uh, others uh, responded with the Phillies World Series Day Parade. How many of you went to that? I can remember being right there at City Hall. And as they were coming around uh, City Hall there, um, seeing the players and immediately all this uh, all, all the, the streamers and banners and uh, enormous amount of people that were uh, shouting and cheering and screaming. All that reverberation off the, off the buildings was so incredible. Uh, and even that doesn't compare with what this celebration will be like. There will be nothing like it. And it is this. This is why you have to endure. This is why you must endure. This is why uh, it's described as a treasure that you would sell everything and that you would pursue that treasure. It's described as a pearl and that you would sell everything to acquire that pearl. The kingdom of God is something that's incredibly valuable and there is no rival to it. I was kind of a punk in middle school and I had this terrible habit of calling all my friends in different groups and asking them what they were doing tonight. And I was always waiting for something better. (laughs) And if, if one of them was doing something and it wasn't fun enough, I would call somebody else. And I was looking. And I would often call up to eight or nine groups looking for something better. And then when the something best came along, I would just ignore all the other calls and plans I made and just go do the best thing. That's a terrible illustration. All right? but, but in a lot of ways, it, there is nothing better coming along. There's nothing better that you can go back to. There is no different... Uh, preferred alternative than the picture that was just described as this future coming Mount Zion. 
as this kingdom of God. There is, there is nothing better for you than for you to be united to God through the blood of Jesus Christ and to experience redemption. There will be nothing like it at all. In many ways, this passage mimics the gospel presentation. In the gospel presentation, we have terrible news and then we have incredible news. We have terrible news and incredible news. I, I remember being at a Young Life camp in Colorado and I heard the gospel message clearly over a week-long period. And I remember struggling in the first three or four days with the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and in particular, the sinfulness of my own heart. And then on the third night, uh, experiencing the reality that there is a real punishment for sin. And I remember as an as a 18-year-old going out on the mountainside um, in Buena Vista, Colorado, looking out over the, the night sky and reflecting and thinking, uh, I can't bear the punishment of a holy God. And hearing it for the first time the next night, on the Thursday night, when they share the good news that Jesus bore the punishment for me, just joy overwhelmed me. I was overwhelmed by the love of God that would take the punishment that I deserve for the sins that I had committed. This passage describes the terror and doom of the introduction of a holy God with a holy standard to the law to which none of us could have ever lived up to. And it gives us the good news of Mount Zion. And the way in which you enter Mount Zion, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. This is the exclusive claim of Jesus. And so if you're looking for entrance into Mount Zion, you must seek Jesus. It is only in Him. And for those of you who have found entrance, that is reason enough to endure. Father, we thank You that You have provided a way for us to be reunited with You in Jesus Christ. We worship you for that reality. And we pray that, that you would help us to endure, that you would give us grace and strength, that no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in today, no matter what difficulty, no matter what pain, no matter what hardship, no matter what trials and difficulties that there would be that would cause us to want to turn away from you, that you would give us the grace and strength to endure by faith, to run this race well, to keep the reward in mind and the reward is Jesus Christ and his presence and that we may be with you for all eternity. Help us to keep our eyes on that finish line and that we may live a life of endurance, and self-control and restraint, that we may pursue what is superior and value it over what is temporal and fading. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen.